How do icons, images, and relics fit within Roman Catholic theology? What are the consequences of these beliefs? Find out today on Theology Unplugged as we wrap up our series on Roman Catholicism. Let's try to relate this to church history, okay? I mean, has has this ever been dealt with in the sense of, uh, I mean, are we the first people who are sitting here saying, hey, let's evaluate these icons? Obviously, it's been dealt with at the Reformation. Icons, images, and and, uh, relics are not thought of well in the Protestant church. And as Sam said, we need to be careful about that because sometimes we... I guess, maybe you're saying that, I want you to expand on that and you guys to chime in, but maybe we can throw the baby out with the bathwater sometimes, or or maybe we can misdiagnose a problem by saying people uh, who have a image of Christ are worshiping that image or or are uh, um, uh, have an idol, as Sam said. Um, but and I think though we would reject the maybe you're getting there with the iconoclast movement that was yeah well, way, talk about that way before the Reformation. Uh, but the idea was was uh, the perception that people were worshiping all of these images and different things, and so people would literally go into churches and rip everything off the walls. All these nice, beautiful mosaics, uh, mosaics in the floor. We're talking um, in the ninth century, too, right? Yeah, yeah. Even before that, yeah. yeah. So before the Crusades, uh, for sure, uh, and yeah, are just destroying massive amounts of uh, of images of Jesus. So it, it's very likely that there were many pictures of Jesus that were done in mosaic or done in really beautiful ways from people that might have been eyewitnesses possibly that were all destroyed because the perception was these are these are idols, these are images, we need to get rid of them so that we only worship the living God. And uh, and so we are not advocating that we go into the Vatican and the British Museum and, and the, all these, the Smithsonian, and destroy everything biblical that we can find. Well, there must have been some reason that they did that. I mean, you don't just go in and destroy these things for no reason. I mean, it's like it seems to be that by this time at the iconoclastic controversy or the i think that means the breaking or the crashing or uh the the controversy of smashing <laughs> smashing the icons mm-hmm. um the iconoclasts maybe saw something within the church that was an abuse and that's why they said let's go in and do that because we have a iconoclastic type thing that happens with Martin Luther as well that Martin Luther really jumped on the people about but Let's describe that. I mean, what was that a legitimate controversy? Was it, I mean, it was the Eastern Church and the Western Church who kind of went through this, but there was a kind of a resolution that was brought about, and both the Eastern Church and the Western Church ended up pretty much agreeing on uh, the use of icons. But the abuse of them, I mean, it's just so easy to abuse. Why not just say, let's just, let's just not do this? Well, that's what uh, the Emperor of the East, Leo III, actually argued for. He was the first official voice to oppose the use of icons because if what we had been talking about earlier, he actually believed that it was inevitable that it would cross the line from what they would call veneration, uh, which simply means honoring uh, the object or the person represented in the icon, and that veneration would cross over into worship. And so um, Leo, this was uh, early 8th century, um, was kind of the first iconoclast. Pope Gregory uh, II defended the use 
of icons and images, and he, he maintained this distinction. And it really came to a head at the Seventh Ecumenical Council, I think it was in uh, late 8th century, 787 AD, that uh, the use of icons and images was actually approved. And they were careful to maintain this distinction between veneration and worship. Um, unfortunately, as we've already talked about, human nature doesn't recognize that divide. Uh, that kind of distinction is a very fine one, a very careful and delicate one. And when it comes down just to the daily practice and the orientation of the human heart, um, typically uh, it's difficult to separate the two. Uh, and again, if you pressed, and I, because I've talked to people in Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism, if you press them and say, all right, now tell me, uh, you know, is there uh, is there a, an unhealthy dependence here upon this image, this icon? Are you crossing the line? And they would say, absolutely not. But when it comes down to actual practice uh, and the degree to which they can live and thrive spiritually uh, without those images and icons, it comes very close to the, the answer being no, they can't. And that's when it becomes extremely dangerous. Well, I want to uh, wrap up our time with icons here because we're going to wrap up the series here during this uh, this broadcast. But <clears throat> uh, it, it, it would seem that one of our – I mean, think of this. I mean, don't Protestants have relics and images and icons the same way? We just – the principles that are involved. I mean, like – I have a baseball card collection. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, I pretty much venerate Mickey Mantle, but I mean, I you – know. Well, from a religious standpoint, <laughs> think, think of this. Uh, somebody comes in and, Sam, you talked uh, last broadcast about somebody not cursing in front of an image of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Well, what about the Bible? You know, people – we say place your hand upon the Bible as if that somehow – venerates or mm-hmm. or sanctifies what it is that we're going to say. Now, we can we're, do that we were in move, right We're moving right now, and we're in the garage this weekend, and my wife said to me really sweetly, you know, this old Bible, the spines, is it bad to throw away a Bible? Can you do <laughs> you that? You didn't throw it away, did you? I said throw it away. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's things like that. Or, or people go into church, and we say, take your hat off, and that can be a sense of honor, or it can be a sense of, uh, God has a special different presence here, a different power, or or people do something inside of a church that they think is, you know, if you're a rebel, you know, you do something bad inside of a church, and somehow that is worse than it is doing outside the church. But again, it's just this human tendency to find relics, right? Yeah, we, we have, an I think, an instinctive inclination to invest in our symbols, um, a, a power and an honor that perhaps is a little bit uh, out of proportion. I mean, look at the debate in the country today over the American flag. And it what is it? It's a symbol. It's not freedom. That's not my right to vote isn't that piece of garment, but it represents the, the lives that people have lost in order to preserve those freedoms for us. And so for some people, the flag has become something of a relic. So they're obviously, you know, people want constitutional amendments against flag burning, on which I have no opinion. I'm not expressing one. <laughs> um, but we, we tend to invest in our symbols a great deal of value and importance. And um, the question is, um, at, at what point have we crossed a line? At what point um, have we... Um, lost sight of the purpose of a symbol and an object lesson and a tangible uh, substance. 
you know, I, people today still go over to the Holy Land and they take their little jars and they go down to the Jordan River and they yeah, dip yeah. some water. This is the water in which Jesus was baptized. And suddenly they invest in it a, a, a supposed miracle power. In fact, turn on TV and there's a couple of preachers that will sell you a little jar of Jordan spring water or whatever it is for a small price. Um, so, you know, Christians in all traditions tend toward this, and I think we just have to guard ourselves very carefully. Um, I mean, I know, you know, my uh, I honor and love J.I. Packer so dearly, and if anybody's ever read Knowing God, they realize that he has a lengthy treatise or chapter in there in which he defends the uh, the, the the position that it's wrong to have pictures of Jesus and images, whether in a Sunday school class or in any other kind of context. And uh, he's been challenged on that. But here's a godly man who says, I'm just, I'm very fearful of, of what that can do to my heart, that I'm going to invest in this photographic reproduction of somebody who isn't my savior, a power and an authority in my life that it shouldn't have. Mm. You have to think, you know, a good cultural anthropologist or an anthropologist of any kind, uh, they're not surprised that uh, that there would be this history in the Roman Catholic Church because if you study primitive religions on through modern religions, this seems to be our tendency to do this. And that just further strengthens my confidence in, in the God as he is revealed in Scripture that, that here is a quote-unquote faith system that is so inherently resistant to that kind of use of objects. Mm. Well, you know, that it comes back again for me, at least to the second commandment and, and the principles behind that and trying to figure out how I can make sure that I'm not breaching those principles, not just, you know, I, obviously I guarantee that 99.9 or 100% of our audience does not have an idol of God in their house that they would say, oops, <laughs> you know, I, I can't help it. I, I keep on breaking the second commandment every time, you know, I I get rid of this idol, I just think all day about recreating a new one. The principle is what we are breaking whenever we uh, ascribe or, or, or need to have God visible in front of us in some way, whether it be through his power in a relic or whether it be through a picture that replaces him. And, and that, that's what we're talking about here. And I guess if we elevate it to the principle status and then say, did the Catholic Church institutionalize a breaking of the Second Commandment? That would be the primary question. Yeah, and I, and I don't know that I would say that they did. I, I Coming back to what we talked about earlier, um, my it seems to me that the abuse to which this was subjected was tied uh, very closely to the whole practice of indulgences and the belief in purgatory. And once... Um, uh, people were locked into a system in which their relationship to God could be um, manipulated and changed, improved or uh, harmed based upon their response to these relics and images in which supposedly the grace of God was resident. Uh, that was That's of great, great concern to me. And, uh, uh, you know, the idea that you know, I, I just give you another example. I, I remember when I attended uh, an Eastern Orthodox church as a part of a course I was teaching at Wheaton College, and uh, everybody who walked in, there was a large podium of sorts with an icon that was embedded in it, and each individual walked in and um, bent over and kissed it, and the parents would pick up the little children and hold them up, and they would kiss it, uh, and it became... 
if I had if, if I had had the opportunity to say, all right, let me ask you a question. Um, is the favor of God or the love of God or the power of God in your life enhanced by what you just did? And would you stand to suffer loss if you had failed to do so? And I think most of them would say yes. And that's that's of concern to me. It is, I love what Sam just did, Michael, because he again reminded us that we can't talk about this in a vacuum, but this one issue is part of a web, as every theological system is. And so it's not just whether or not we think this will lead down a bad road if it's encouraged, but we have to ask, will it lead down a bad road with the fearful prospect of purgatory ahead of you and with the hopeful prospect of reducing your time in it? You know, this, this whole idea of icons and relics has to be fitted within a system of theological mediation that energizes it. Well, we have been talking about, as you've called it a couple times, I think, uh, J.J., a web, a complicated web. And, and it is, Roman Catholicism seems to be a, a complicated web. I hope that uh, during this series we have been able to break it down for people and help people to understand it and engage it uh, deep, more deeply ourselves. But I think there's a couple of questions maybe to wrap this up. Uh, Sam, you had talked about... Uh, uh, the, the idea, of, okay, what what is it within the system that may be, you know, we've talked about so many things and, you know, we've, I think, I think we've tried to understand and say, okay, we can, we can live with this or we can understand this or we even have our own kind of this, but when does it cross the boundaries within the Roman Catholic system from a Protestant standpoint? Yeah, that's the, that's the big question, isn't it? Uh, because that's the, the answer to which uh, really dictates the degree to which we will want to have uh, and to what kind of fellowship with Roman Catholics, to what extent will we join and partner with them in certain uh, social um, realities. Uh, you know, the whole evangelicals and Catholics together, ECT movement that Timothy George and um, Newhouse and Colson and Packer have been a part of. And the, the question that, you know, I'm just thinking back over, I don't know how many of these series, sessions we've done, and we've talked about everything from their view of Scripture to their understanding of the authority of the Pope to their uh, beliefs about Mary to their understanding of the sacraments to their view of justification um, to the issue of indulgences and purgatory and all of these. And, you know, basically what I understand you're asking is, is there... Is there any one particular doctrine, belief, that could prove eternally fatal? Not just, um, you know, we're going to sit here and differ over eschatology and the timing of the rapture, or we're going to differ over the mode of baptism. Um, Is there something within the Roman Catholic theological system that that is of eternal concern? John MacArthur put it this way, uh, and maybe we can evaluate this statement as well. He said, well, when asked the same type of question, I think it was during the uh, 1994, 1995, whenever they were talking about ECT and, you know, Packer and Colson were on one side saying, let's sign this statement and join with Catholics in, a, in at least a social cause because we agree upon so much. And then we had R.C. Sproul, James Kennedy, and John MacArthur, who were vehemently against it and going around and uh, at least did one conference about this. And when, when, talk, when talking about this question, John MacArthur said, I think that a bad Catholic is fine, you know, as long as you're not a good Catholic. Mm-hmm. 
But he says, anytime you're a good Catholic and you agree with catechism and you're, you're ascribing to everything that they believe, he basically said that uh, that is an eternal issue, that you, uh, a good Catholic cannot be saved. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not prepared to affirm that uh, personally. Uh, but l- let me, l- let's ask that, let's dig a little bit more deeply into that. What would it mean to be a good Catholic? Um, is it an eternally damning uh, reality to affirm the perpetual virginity of Mary? No. Um, is it, does it put your soul in peril that you believe in transubstantiation? No. Uh, is it um, a threat to your relationship with God that you believe in purgatory? No. So the question is, at what point are we going to say yes to one of these questions? And for me, I think the one issue, and we addressed this, we spent two weeks on it, is the issue of justification. Because then we're pressing into the question of, on what am I dependent? In what have I vested my trust and my hope for the cleansing and the forgiveness of my sins? And if someone answers that with anything other than the finished work, the sinless life, the finished work on the cross, and the bodily resurrection of Jesus, I am deeply concerned. Um, now, that doesn't mean that a person can't have a deficient or defective or slightly tweaked view of justification. Uh, Certainly, all of us probably don't understand the doctrine fully, and we might have differences of opinion on certain parts of it here and there. But when it really gets down to the nitty-gritty of what does the cross mean to you, and on what have you placed, in what have you placed your trust for the cleansing of your sin and your righteous accept standing before God? Then we're at the at the brink of dealing with difference. Now we're not talking now about oh we've got uh, slight variations in our views on some of these issues. Now we're talking about the welfare of your eternal soul. Yeah, and I agree. I think that whenever it comes down to it, all of these issues, and they are important. Don't mean to you know downplay the importance of you know dealing with purgatory. And if you're sitting with me and you believe in purgatory, and I will continually try to get that out of your life but at the same time it does come down to that issue of justification by faith alone and what are you trusting in however i'm going to push back on you a little bit sam and 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 try to see 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 what you guys think of this i think that you said a lot of us have a deficient view and we can always increase in our understanding of god's grace and justification by faith alone but, you know, there's a lot of people within Protestantism who believe you can lose your salvation. Mm-hmm. And what, well, on what basis? Well, I, I either I need to keep the faith, so aren't they trusting in their own ability to keep the faith? Or I need to keep from doing anything really bad. You know, a lot of Protestants think that uh, there are certain even mortal sins within Protestantism. There's a small group of a certain type of Arminians that believe that, not, not mainstream Arminians. But also, and there, there's a large group of baptismal regenerationists mm-hmm. who believe, you know, just this one thing, this this one issue, I, I'm trusting in that Christ, what he did through my baptism, what he does through my faith, but they're adding to that. So, so can you be saved and believe that baptism has contributed to your salvation? I mean, because everybody would say that Christ works through baptism, but... 
baptism contributes or my visit to mass this morning contributed, can you be saved? And I would say myself, I think you can, but what I feel like is that you need to be released from the bondage the Galatians, Paul and Galatians, to, to the Galatians. You need to get this burden off your back. You've been saved. Realize that these things that you're adding to your salvation are nothing are not helping you at all. They're turning you back to the old ways. Doesn't mean you're not saved. It means that why are you placing this burden upon your back that is unnecessary? Mm-hmm. And so I would see Roman Catholics as, listen, you were saved whenever you trusted in Christ, if you trusted in Christ. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, whenever they hear the gospel, what is the gospel to them? And that would be a big deal for me. What was it that you heard that that enlightened you, that turned you to God, that made you repent? And if if they say, oh, I did all this stuff, then I would say, no, no, you know, that's for sure out of boundaries. But if they hear about Christ and they say, Christ, forgive me, have mercy upon me. And then the pastor, the priest comes up to him and says, now you need to be baptized. Now you need to come to mass every week. Now you need to, you know, do this and this and added all this to their salvation that they already had. That is a corruption of their understanding. And it's an issue of sanctification, but not an issue of justification to me. It's tough. We are talking about people who profess better than they believe and people on the other hand, who believe better than they profess. And pastorally, as we're seeking to help them, I think we're really aiming for the heart, for the inner Mm -hmm. self. If salvation is as dramatic as Scripture describes it, where someone is literally moving from death to life, and the gospel is transformed from an offensive thing to a cherished thing, if I'm working through this with someone pastorally, there are propositional truths that I will test them with. But at the end of the day, I think what I'm looking for, and I, and I agree with you, Michael, is I'm looking for, is the gospel an offense to you or is the gospel a treasure? And better yet, is Jesus your greatest treasure? Is the truth of what he accomplished on your behalf in the gospel move you and, and do you see him as your greatest treasure or, or are you offended by the gospel when I articulate it to you? You know, I'd like to think of these things because we get a lot of people within Protestantism that have a lot of issues, you know, and... We, we give a lot of grace depending on certain issues, like C.S. Lewis, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think probably all of us at this table love C.S. Lewis, even though we would say, man, there's, there, here, here's some significant things that he had wrong. Maybe it was... Uh, Limbo or... Yeah, or he was an inclusivist. He, he uh, held out for some type of purgatory from what I understand, or at least was open to that. But here's the thing about C.S. Lewis. His bad doctrine was not in his front pocket. It was in his back pocket, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Christ was in his front pocket. Whenever you looked at him, whenever he wrote books, he didn't write about those issues. I mean, those were side, you know, issues. They were not part of the chorus. They were part of the stanza. Mm-hmm. What is part of the chorus of your, your confession and your mm-hmm. life? Uh, but whenever purgatory, whenever Mary, whenever the church become your chorus, then I would say that's, I, I don't know whether you're saved or not. That's not the issue for me because I can't ever really deal with that. But what I'm saying is, you got to get that in the back pocket. Right. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things we need to keep in mind is let's let the Scriptures control our thoughts here because there are some texts where we are told specifically that some people aren't saved and why. I think of 1 John 2 and 1 John 4. If you deny that Jesus is God come in the flesh, you're the spirit of Antichrist. Um, so that that's pretty definitive. Um 
in the absence of those kinds of very clear, explicit declarations, um, I think we always need to be cautious before we think we can pass judgment on the state of someone's soul. That doesn't mean I don't have concern for them. It doesn't mean that I won't appeal to them and say, let me just encourage you to look to the cross and think about, um, as J.J. said, is Jesus your treasure? Is he your preeminent prize? Is he the one in whom you've put all your hope? And that's what I would point to. I would appeal. I would exhort and encourage. Um, until do that, do that, Sam. Give a doxology because we are we are done with the series, and this last minute is it. Give a doxology. Give a give a message. And I know there's tons of different types of Roman Catholics, but just one minute. What do you say to these Roman Catholics? <laughs> After a f- uh, rejoicing in what we share in common, our confidence in the triune God of uh, Scripture and uh, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, I would say. Um, look to the cross and ask yourself, uh, or maybe perhaps not yourself, ask the Spirit of God, awaken my heart, show me any area in which I am confident in anything other than your grace and what you have done for me through the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Examine me, unveil, reveal, disclose any hidden motives, uh, any uh, confidence in my goodness or my work, and uh, draw me to a soul um, uh, confidence, a, a singular um, preeminent trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. That's what I would say to them. That's what I would appeal to them. Um, and uh, hope and pray that we will uh, be able to sit around in the new heavens and the new earth and discuss these matters with uh, those who even now are Roman, Roman Catholics or Eastern Orthodox. Well, guys, that's a good way to end this series. I'll preach. Theology Unplugged is presented by the Credo House. For more information on the Credo House, visit www.credohouse.org.